those of you who I don't know, my name is Ryan, and I'm the college pastor here at Northway, and we're glad that you're here. Um, first, got to ask, does anyone, how many of you raise your hand actually know what this jersey is referencing? Oh, my gosh, there are two people, just like a three. Okay, okay, there's a few of you. So this is a movie from the 90s. It's a Disney movie. It's great. It's called The Mighty Ducks. I know it makes me old as dirt, but you should watch it. It's a classic. So said my piece about that and showed my age as well. Um, anyways, yeah, I'm excited for tonight. I'm excited to, to study God's word with you guys. Um, so for, for me, when I was in college, for my first two years, I had two of my best friends ever with me for those two years. Micah, uh, who was actually the drummer tonight, so y'all can say hey to him later on. Micah and then um, my buddy Seth, we are best friends and we got to spend the first two years of our college experience together. And so the, what that meant is we did everything together. Like we spent all the time together, we did everything. You didn't see one of us without the other two close by. I mean, so much so when we would run into teammates or friends and they'd see just like one of us or two of us, they'd say, where's the other one? And, and it got to be so bad to the point where when they left, because Seth went out of the country and Micah left Mercer after two years, I was left on campus and I would walk to campus, walk to class, be sitting in the calf, and my friends or teammates would see me. And the first thing they would say is, hey, have you talked to Micah lately? Or how's Seth doing? I'm like, I'm fine, by the way, but they're doing great. I talked to them. Um, they just, we were a package deal, did everything together. Um, but there was one time, and they'll both, and Micah can vouch for this, they would both say this. There was a time where we were getting together, hanging out, saying, okay, what are we going to do tonight? What are we going to do this weekend? And um, I was like, actually, I've got plans for tonight. They looked at me like, what? I was like, yeah, I'm hanging out with someone else tonight. And they're like, you don't have any other friends? What are you talking about? Like, what? What do you mean you have plans? And I said, yeah, you know, Sarah from my friend from our old youth group, um, going over to her house to hang out with her family, and we're just going to hang out. I'm like, so you're going to ditch us and bail on us for a girl from your old youth group to hang out with her family. I said, like, yep. Like, okay. And eventually what happened is Sarah and I began to date, and now we are happily married. And, and Seth and Micah will both point back to this time and say, yeah, we knew something was up. Because you bailed on us for her, and we knew that something was up, something was special, something was different in y'all's relationship. And, and here's the point of all this. When my heart for her grew, my inner longings and desires began to change. And as my inner longings and desires changed, my outward behavior and outward actions changed as well. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. That's what we're going to read tonight in 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. Peter is going to talk about the change of the inner self, which leads to change of the outer self, which then he says he promises will lead to a life that you love and good days. And that's a strong promise. That's something we would all want. We want a life that, that we love. We want to love life and we want to see good days. And that's the promise that we get from these verses. And so we're going to dive in there tonight. Again, 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. Um, just a, a few uh, just things of background context before we get into actually read the verses. Um, in this series, in our exile series, we've said that we've been studying 1 Peter, and it's written by the apostle Peter. 
And Peter wrote it to who he calls the elect exiles. Elect meaning set apart, chosen by God. And exiles, because they've been set apart, chosen by God, they are living in a place that's not their home. They're living in a place that is, is just temporary, that this world is not their final destination. And even specifically for them, not only are they Christians, so that means that this world's not their home, but they're being persecuted. That persecution is growing among them, and it's getting more and more difficult for them. So Peter writes this letter to them. And what we've said from the beginning of the series is this rings true for us as well, that this is something that is pointed for us, that for those of us who are followers of Jesus— this world's not our home, that this is a temporary place for us and that our ultimate dwelling is with God and his kingdom. And so this is just a, a place that we're passing through. But it's even more pointed for you guys in this season of life, those of you who, even if you're not in college, but in the college years, you are very much in a temporary season, that this, this season is something that is short-lived. It's something that that will change over the next couple of years. And so for many of you, this, this town might not even be your final destination. And so this is something that is good for us as believers, but even specifically for you guys um, as this particular season of life. And so Peter, he's going to remind them in the opening of this letter, remind them of their identity. Remind them who they are, that, that they once were dead but through God's great mercy and love, he has caused them to be born again. He's caused them to have a new life. He said, uh, through trusting in Jesus and who he is, that he lived the perfect life, that he died on the cross as their ransom, as their substitution, that he raised from the grave, that through trusting in that, they've been made to live again. That they were once enemies of God, but now they're sons and daughters. And as sons and daughters, they are heirs to the kingdom of God. That you have a rich inheritance that is being secured and kept for you as believers. And so this rich inheritance, and even amidst the suffering and persecution that they're facing, they have a living hope. That once they were hopeless, but now they have an abundance of hope through Christ. And so he writes them and encourages them to, to as exiles, live as exiles. To live differently from the world that's around them. To to live a life that is holy and set apart. He specifically talks about them living differently in regards to authority, them living different, differently in their marriages. He says, I want you to serve God wholeheartedly. And on the tail end of that is where we pick up in our verses that tonight. Um, he's going to first speak to the inner self, then the outer self, and he's going to give a promise of blessing. So let's walk through these verses, starting in verse 8. So verse 8 says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So he says, all of you. Now he's been sp speaking to specific groups of people thus far, but now he's saying, hey, you as believers, as followers of Jesus, all of you. And he lists five things of the inner self that he wants them to have. The first is unity of mind. He said, I want you to have a mindset of unity, of oneness, of, of harmony among one another. I want you to desire from the innermost part of who you are, oneness and harmony and peace among your group, among your fellow believers. 
And that what that means is if there's disunity, if there's division, if there's conflict, you will set out to reconcile and bring peace because you have a mindset set on unity. And we get this, we see this in our own relationships. Think about a friend that you have or someone that you're really close with or maybe even a sibling that over time you start to think like them, speak like them. You think in marriages when, when they start to speak. Uh, think for one another and speak uh, the same as one another, you become one in mind. And this is what Peter's saying. He says, hey, you as followers of Jesus, I want you to have a mindset, a, a heart set on oneness, on being together as one. And he says, I want you to have sympathy, to, to feel with one another, to, to feel the suffering that each other are feeling. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. He says, I want you to, to feel with one another. That if, if one of you is undergoing persecution and suffering, then you just feel that in the very fiber of who you are. And you suffer alongside them. If someone rejoices and is excited and overjoyed, you feel that too. You celebrate alongside them. You feel that. I want you to feel what your brothers and sisters in Christ are feeling. Then he says, I want you to have brotherly love. I want you to have this familial connection with one another. And we, again, get this because for, raise your hand if you have a sibling, actually. Raise your hand if you have a sibling. Okay, actually most of you. Okay, you get this. Your siblings drive you insane sometimes, maybe a lot of times. And you don't always like your siblings, but they're your siblings, and you love them. Even if you don't like them sometimes, you love them because you have a deeper connection than just the outward actions. He says, I want you to have this brotherly love for one another. You as followers of Jesus, your love for them, your love for one another is not based on what they've done for you, but it's based on who they are in relation to you. That they are a child of God that they are someone that Jesus died to save, and because of that, they are your sister, they are your brother. You have a deep connection. He says, I want you to have a tender heart. To, he's asked them to feel with, and now he's saying, I want you to feel for. I want you to be kind-hearted and have deep compassion for one another. It's helpful in this one to think of the opposite. If, if someone's hard-hearted, then their heart is closed off, they're cold to emotions, they're distant, they're unmoved by others' sorrow or misfortune. He says, no, I want you to be tender-hearted. When I think of tender-heartedness, the, without a doubt, the first person that comes to my mind is Sarah's mom. Um, her mom, Miss Anne, is a saint. She is the sweetest lady that you will ever meet in your life. She is just tender-hearted to the core, like can watch a commercial and cry. You're like, what? That was a car commercial. How are you crying right now? But she is just so tender-hearted. And I think of a time when I was... Our dog Maggie's just kind of goofy, and she does kind of crazy things. And one of the things she does is when I feed her in the mornings, pretty much every single time after she eats, she comes to me and she just grunts. Because Maggie does what we call her happy grunt. It's kind of like a cat. She purrs. Again, she's a little bit weird. And I, I just think it's funny. It's kind of, so I tongue-in-cheek say that she is just thanking me for providing food for her. She just has a gracious heart, and she's thanking me. And I, I say it kind of joking, and I was telling my mother-in-law this, saying, yeah, Maggie does this thing where she comes and grunts and thanks us for her food, thinking she'd be like, oh, that's funny. And she's like, oh, she's so sweet. She just loves you guys, like tears almost in her eyes. I was like, I was joking, Miss Ann. But she's just that tenderhearted. 
And here Peter says, hey, I want you to have a tender heart towards one another. I want you to deeply feel for your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, I want you to, to have a humble mind, to have a lowly mindset, a mindset and a disposition of humility as you walk towards one another. C.S. Lewis, he, he has a quote that I think really uh, displays it well where he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So humility is not uh, self-deprecating, putting yourself down. No, humility is being so consumed with God's majesty and glory and so in love with him and, and so in love of his people and his children and others that you just kind of fall to the background, that your mind just kind of puts you last compared to them. He, you put others first. And that's what it'll tell us in Philippians 2.3 is that do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. First Peter, later on in chapter 5, he's going to say to clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. That you put on humility as you move on, move towards one another. You, you move towards one another knowing that you don't have it all figured out. Knowing that you're not perfect. Knowing that you don't have all the answers. And what that allows you to do is to give grace with one another. That when they drive you crazy or when they get something wrong, when your brothers and sisters act like real brothers and sisters and frustrate you, you can have grace towards them because you are moving towards them with humility. And all these things, all these inner self things, they work in tandem, work with one another. And the focal point, the hinge of it all, is brotherly love. And, and we see this with how they're even laid out. First, he says unity of mind, right? He says, have unity of mind, and that relates to the fifth one, have a humble mind. They're both dealing with the mindset. And what we know is humility is key to, key to unity. You need humility if you want unity. And then we see that the second one, sympathy or feeling with someone, is similar to the fourth one, which is a tender heart or feeling for someone. Both of them center around having compassion towards one another. And then that makes the third one, the, the central one, the hinge and center of it all is brotherly love. Having a, a deep desire for one another, to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. See, Peter, he calls them as Christians who are facing this persecution to, to have this brotherly love for one another. Because what he knows to be true is that if the enemy can cause division and enmity among the body of Christ then there's a greater chance that they're going to fold amidst the persecution, that they're going to scatter amidst persecution. See, their unity, their brotherly love for one another is the heartbeat of the gospel. It's the heartbeat of Christ. That you haven't just been saved as a Christian to God, but you've been saved to a people. You've been saved to brothers and sisters in Christ. And what comes with that is you have a mindset of oneness and humility. You have a mindset of, I'm going to put the team first. How can I serve my brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that will build up the church and set forth the mission of the church, which is proclaiming the gospel of Christ? What that means is, in light of the gospel, I can have a tender-hearted sympathy and compassion for my brothers and sisters. I rejoice and celebrate when they rejoice, and I weep when they weep. It means that I have a deep familial love that cannot be shaken by any external action for my brothers and sisters 
who Christ died to save. And this inward change leads to an outward change. And that's where Peter goes in verse 9. He moves to the external behaviors. In verse 9 it says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So, so remember the context they're in. They're in persecution. They're in this, this difficult time. And what he's calling them to do is says, hey, when you are persecuted, when others act e- evilly towards you, when others are acting in an unjust way towards you, don't respond with wickedness. Don't respond with vengeance. When they criticize you and insult you and abuse you verbally, don't clap back at them. Don't respond with verbal, verbal vengeance. But rather, instead of responding with vengeance, bless them. Practically do good to them. Speak good about them. Verbally speak well to their face, but then also verbally speak well about them when you're not around them. Bless them. And this language, it might send off alerts for some of you guys because it reminds us of the words and actions of Jesus. Jesus, in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He says, hey, you've heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. He says, no, 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 you love your enemy. In fact, when they do evil to you, Pray for them. Pray for them. And not a prayer of pray that their brakes go out. Pray for them that good would happen to them. Pray that God would bless them. Pray that God would work and move in their lives in miraculous ways. Pray good for them. It also helps us think back to just, if you've been with us throughout this series, to 1 Peter chapter 2, where it's talking about Jesus when he went to the cross. It says this in verses 21 through 25, it says, leading for you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He says, follow the example of Jesus. When Jesus was undergoing persecution, when he was being whipped and insulted and mocked, He didn't clap back at them with his words. He didn't revile them for reviling him. But instead, he entrusted it all to the just judge that is God, knowing that God will punish evil and wickedness either in eternity or on the cross of Christ. And so Jesus, he said nothing. And so what what Peter's getting at here is because of my identity as a chosen child of God, because I have an inheritance that is being kept for me in heaven, because I have a living hope that this world is not my forever home, I have the ability to respond as Jesus responded. Here's what we know to be true, that recipients of great grace become distributors of great grace. Recipients of great love become distributors of great love. And so when I'm mistreated, when I'm being insulted and mocked or reviled by my enemies, I have the freedom to turn and extend love and grace because that's what Jesus did for me. That while I was his very enemy, he crossed heaven and earth to die for me. And so 
because of this, I will live differently. I'll live differently because of what Jesus did for me. And, and in other words, what all, this hap- what all this has to do, what it all says is when the Holy Spirit changes our inner self, when he changes our heart, it changes our heart to look like the heart of Jesus. And as our heart begins to be changed to look like the heart of Jesus, our hands and feet begin to be changed to look like his hands and feet. We begin to live, speak, and act like Jesus lived. And when you live this way, Peter says at the end of that verse, I don't know if you caught it, he says, when you live this way, you obtain a blessing. And in the next verses, he's going to go ahead and and, uh, defend that claim. And so reading verses 10 through 12, the last verses we have, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is actually a quote. He's drawing from Psalm 34 verses 12 through 16, which is a psalm of David. And in that that those verses, in verse 11, he actually, David says, come all you children, come and listen to what I have to say. So he's, he's gathering them all together and he says, hey, who wants to love their life? Anyone, anyone want to love your life? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Who wants to, wants good for their days? And they're like, yeah, I want good for my days. I want love for my days. And he says, okay, then, then this is how you need to live. Don't speak evil or deceit or, or say untrue things. And in fact, turn away from evil and wickedness completely. Live the righteous life. Do good. Seek peace and pursue peace. See, these thoughts, again, you're probably triggered back to Jesus' words and Jesus' actions where in Matthew 5, 9, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. And then again in 1 Peter 2, he says, he committed no sin and neither was deceit found in his mouth. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It says that Jesus, he was righteous and perfect. He completed, he committed no sin. There was no deceit or untruth in his mouth. But rather he took on our sins and he went to the cross. He died on the cross so that we might live to righteousness. See, something beautiful happens on the cross of Christ. That when people... When we put our trust in Jesus, our sins are placed on him and they're crucified with him. But then his righteousness is taken and extended to us. And so we then walk in righteousness. And when you live righteously, what this verse promises is his face is towards you. It says he hears your prayers, that he's near to you. That what what he's going to tell us in these verses is that we obtain a blessing. But he promises, if you live righteously, you obtain a blessing. But if you live and do evil, then his face is turned against you. And so here's what he's saying. If you want to be blessed, if you want to love life and you want to see good days, then you need to live as Jesus has lived. However, if you do not live as Jesus has lived, if you instead turn to evil, not only will he not bless you, but he will turn his face against you. And away from you. So what does that mean? What does that mean um, that God's face is against those who do evil? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that those who are in Christ, those who are Christians, will lose God's favor and lose their salvation if they sin and fall short. 
The reality is in this life, we stumble and fall even as Christians. It doesn't mean that we lose that. Because here's the reality, not one, no one's righteous. That's what it tells us in Romans chapter 3. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is wicked because of their hearts. But through the ransom and sacrifice of Jesus, for those who, who trust in him, they will receive his righteousness. So those who were once unrighteous now walk in righteousness. And so his face is against those who do evil and are wicked, and he will justly punish the evil. But for those who have the righteousness of Jesus placed on them, his face is towards them. He is with them, and they have this ultimate salvation. Now, what does it mean that God blesses you and his face is towards you? Well, here's what it definitely does not mean. It does not mean that you earn your salvation. The Bible is very clear about this. Peter is very clear about this. He says in the beginning that, that it is by God's mercy that you have been born again and made alive. It is not by any work you have done. No good deed has earned you salvation. Your good deeds, the good actions you do, they're a result of the Holy Spirit living within you. And here's what blessing also does not mean. It does not mean that if you obey and do good and you live as Jesus lives, then your life is going to be easy and it's going to be enjoyable and you will experience no bad circumstances, that success is coming to you, that material blessings are coming to you, that, that you're going to get this new car, you're going to get the life that you want, it's all going to be perfect and easy. That is absolutely not what this blessing is and what it means. In fact, in, in the next few verses, in verse 14, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. He said, so he's clearly not talking about a material blessing. He says, hey, if you will do good, then you'll be blessed. And by the way, you still might suffer. And then later on, he even goes as far to say in chapter 4, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. See, he's clearly not talking about material blessing. He says, don't be surprised, in fact, when the fiery trial comes. Like, it's going to come. And for them, it quite literally might have been a fiery trial. Nero was burning Christians to light up his dinner parties. And so for them, he's clearly not talking about a life of ease, a life of material blessings and success. And here's the reality, what we need to understand is, I told you that when, when the Holy Spirit works in our heart and shapes our heart and match the heart of Jesus, that it then takes us and it makes our hands and feet look like the hands and feet of Jesus. And the reality is the hands and feet of Jesus have been pierced. That Jesus was mocked, he was reviled, he was persecuted, he was ultimately crucified and died a painful death. Jesus himself suffered. And he doesn't promise us that we won't suffer. In fact, he promises us that we will have trouble. He says, hey, they hated me, so of course they're going to hate you. In this life, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so be very weary, anyone who, who preaches a prosperity gospel and says that if you turn to Jesus, all your circumstances are going to be good, they're going to turn out the way you want them to turn, you're going to get blessings, you're not going to have hard times, because that's just not the reality of what the scripture teaches us. But here's what that blessing means. What it means is that amidst bad circumstances, amidst the fiery trials, you will still love life and see good days. That even in the difficult times, 
even when life is not good, is not fun, even when you are suffering, you can still say, I love this life that God has given me. I am seeing these good days, even though the days are not good by the measure of the world. What it means is when you've royally missed the mark and you've sinned against God, then you know that your worth is not contingent upon your works, but it's contingent in, in sitting on the works of Christ. And that you sit and you rest in an ocean of grace. You know that when the world around you is falling apart and falling apart around you, that you rest on the solid, unchanging rock of Christ. You know that when your days are dark, that you still walk in the light of Christ. You know that when your physical body is broken and you are in pain, you know that this pain is only temporary and for but a season, and that because of Christ, he is the great physician and he has brought you ultimate healing, and that one day he will give you a fully healed and glorified body. And you know that when you are overcome with grief and with sorrow, you grieve in the arms of Christ. And you know that he's your gracious savior who does not waste a single tear of his children. That is what it looks like to have God's favor upon you. That is what it looks like to be blessed by God, that even when life circumstances wear you down and life is hectic and chaotic and seems out of control, you know he's in control and you know he's working for your good and you know that you have a peace and a joy beyond all measure. You love life and you see good days. So I'm just going to wrap this up for us and, and kind of tie it up for us. If you are in here and you are a follower of Jesus, the, the question I have for you, the question I want you to ask yourself is, what does my inner self look like? What does my inner self look like? Do I have a deep desire and longing for unity? Do I have a deep desire and longing for oneness with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do I have continual contention and division in my life? Do you have a deep compassion for others? Do you rejoice when others are rejoicing? Do you, do you suffer when others are suffering? Or is your heart cold and distant from those around you? Do you walk towards others with humility, counting others as, as greater than yourself? Or do you walk around with an air of entitlement and arrogance and superiority? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ with a deep, compassionate love? Are you fully plugged into a body of believers where not just on a superficial level where you just kind of show up or maybe you come to church regularly but you're just kind of there but there's no deep communal aspect of it or are you someone who is plugged in to a body of believers who is suffering when they suffer, rejoicing when they rejoice, who is on mission with them for the mission of God? Are your outward actions matching the actions of Jesus? Do you live as he lived? If, does your life look like his life? A good question for the follower of Jesus to ask themselves is, do I love life and see good days? Again, I'm not saying, is my life good in circumstances? Do I not have any bad days circumstantially? I'm saying, do you love and enjoy life? Do you have a deep joy within yourself and see good days? Knowing that even in my hard times, I have this peace about me. And that even when I'm sad and hurting, I have this joy within me. Does your life, is your life characterized 
by this, or do you find yourself distant from God? Are you, are you numb and empty and depressed and anxious? Follower of Jesus, you need to know that on the cross, your life was secured, that you, because of Jesus, can see good days. And so my, my hope and my plea for you is that you would just turn back to Jesus, that you would find yourself at his feet, that you would remember your identity as a chosen child of God, that you would dwell on the rich inheritance that was secured for you, ransomed through the blood of Christ, that you would rest in this living and abounding hope that you have in Christ and that you would allow the Holy Spirit to change and conform your inner self, change and conform your heart to match the heart of Jesus and that as your heart is changed to conform to match the heart of Jesus that your hands and feet would begin to look like his hands and feet. Others of you, you're not followers of Jesus and, and you're in here and you don't love life and you don't see good days. And, and what this means is you don't have this deep joy. And, and what the reason is, is because you're still far from God. That you are still dead in your sins, that you're in rebellion against him. And for some of you, by, by measure of the world, your, your days are good. You've got good things happening around you, good things happening to you. By every measure of the world, your days are good, but you still feel empty. You still don't have this peace within you. You're still not satisfied in your heart. Others of you, you, you don't feel these things and you are suffering. You are going through difficult times and, and like we said, you're, you're not loving life and you, your days aren't good. Here's the reality. I'm not trying to sell to you some quick and easy fix to life, that all your circumstances are gonna be fixed and that if you turn to Jesus, then he's gonna give you success and blessing and all these things. That's not what I'm saying, but what I am saying is that if you will turn to Jesus, you will be able to love life and see good days. That even when life is terrible by every stretch of the imagination, you will have a deep peace and joy beyond satisfaction, beyond measure that is offered freely to you, that if you will turn to Jesus, believing in who he is and what he did on the cross and that God raised him from the dead and that his blood was ransomed for you, that your sins were taken and crucified on the cross of Christ and that you now have the righteousness of Jesus, that you have salvation, you have been forgiven, you have grace, you have an abounding hope. You, that is what is free to you tonight. And I hope and I pray that you will do that, that you will take that step and turn to him.